Good morning, Fellowship of Huntsville. If you are visiting with us today, thank you for being here. We'd like for you to fill out a Connect card. You can find it in the, under the seat of the row in front of you. You can place it in the back, in the box, uh, on the way out the door there, also where we collect our offerings. If you haven't noticed, there's a few less people here today. Our, our youth, along with many adult sponsors, are at winter retreat at uh, Pineywood Camp in uh, Groveton, Texas. They're finishing up this morning and will be returning home here after the second service about 1230. So keep them in your prayers as they finish up and begin their, their trip home. David Jones will be bringing the message today, and he will be teaching out of Matthew chapter 22. So if you can take your Bible and turn to Matthew 22, we will begin in verse 23. Again, chapter 22, verse 23, and we're going to read all the way through verse 29. The same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for this beautiful day, Lord, and thank you for your word. Um, thank, you for, thank you for bringing us together with our family and friends uh, to study your word today. Um, Father, we pray that you would speak through David, and we pray that we would receive your message that you have for us today. Lord, help us to apply it as we leave here today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. And once again, Merry Christmas. We've got Christmas trees up behind me, although one of them is out. So if you're like Monk, you're going to have a problem the whole uh, service. Used to be we had seven trees, and there were four on one side and three on the other. Do you all remember that? Yeah, because you're not like Monk. So anyway, and then one of them blinked every once in a while. It gives me my Monk ind uh, indications that I struggle with those kind of things. But anyway... We're here to uh, study a scripture that um, is a little weird to us. But we're really going to focus on verse 29 when we get to the end. But if you would, uh, turn back to that scripture that John read, Matthew chapter 22, starting in 23. Now, just to give you a little bit of background, this is uh, on Wednesday. So Wednesday afternoon, Wednesday evening or so of the week that Jesus is crucified on Friday. So less than 48 hours after this event here, or this teaching, Jesus is, is taken to the cross. And uh, previous to this, the previous day, obviously Tuesday, is the day that He cleans out the temple. Now the temple is not a small place. The, the, the whole temple grounds is about 36 acres. Now, if you own 36 acres or somewhere in that nature, you understand what that is. I do not own. I own about a fourth of an acre. And so, but a Walmart, a Walmart store is about four to five acres, if you've ever wondered that. 
Um, so you have this temple, and most of it is the courtyard area where uh, pe the, the, the people are selling and buying and gathering together for uh, all kinds of things, but this was Passover. So Passover week, you had a lot of sacrifices that were to be made. Some people estimate that there were over 250,000 sacrifices that would take place on Friday. That's a, that doesn't even compute to me how that would be possible, but the, the area was massive. So when Jesus comes in to turn over the tables, you know that story, maybe you were taught in Sunday school and you have the, he's turning over a couple of tables. It's way more than a couple of tables, all right? So you're talking close to 25 to 30 acres of stuff that's going on here. This is massive. And they weren't Sam's tables, you know, the folding tables, that kind of, these were tables. They were wood, stone, and he shut it down. One man shuts this thing down. The people in charge of that temple, especially on Passover, are the Sadducees. They are the high priests, the ones in charge of the temple. The Pharisees are in charge typically of the synagogues, which are all out scattered across the land. So the Pharisees are the more common man, not as wealthy, middle class types. Uh, the Sadducees are the wealthy. There's fewer of them, but they're more powerful, more powerful politically, more friendly with Rome. So when we get to this passage here, I want you, this is just the next day, all right? Chaos at the temple created by Jesus, turning over the temples, the big money day for the Sadducees, the Super Bowl for them. And now we come to this day, these, these guys, the Sadducees, are livid. Now, I don't know how often you're mad enough, like, or mad as they are, but probably, hopefully not as mad as these guys. Because understand, this madness crucified Jesus in less than 48 hours. And so when they ask them this question, there's a lot of anger going into this. There's a lot of demise and so forth. So in this thing, this isn't just a simple question, but they pull out Scripture, certain things, trying to trick Jesus, but they also opposed the belief of the resurrection. But the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. So you have the Sadducees who believe in this, the first five books of the Bible, Moses the Pentateuch, the, 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 the Torah, that's all they believed in. They dismissed the Psalms and the prophets and all that. The Pharisees gathered it all together and followed all of it. The Pharisees were the ones who organized the 613 laws. And then upon that, they created more behavior. All right. So it was the traditions of the elders. And they just went into a massive amount of information well beyond the 613 laws. The Sadducees were rather condensed into what they believed. It had everything to do with those first five books. But the big difference here is that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, and the Pharisees did. If you remember in, in uh, Acts, we're not going to go there, but Paul used them against each other. And said, hey, what about this resurrection deal and so forth? And then all of a sudden they started arguing, and Paul kind of slips out the back. But the thing is, is they were passionate about this argument. So when the Sadducees bring this up, they're not only going after Jesus, which is their main concern, they're also wanting to prove the Pharisees incorrect. So this is not a casual Sunday lunch discussion. All right, this is, this is big. All right, so 
this, uh, this group of people, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, especially the Sadducees, these are the, these are the pastors, seminary graduates, and the seminary professors of their day. So when Jesus, and not only that, but they're also the judges of their day. So when Jesus confronts them, his, his statement is before the judges, before the ones of knowledge. It's like us coming before the Supreme Court and saying, you don't know what you're talking about, which a lot of you would like to do. But it's, it's, that's not an easy thing, all right? For one thing, even getting in front of them and so forth. All right, so turn to verse 23. On that day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him. I'm going to stop right there. Questioning somebody about something seems to be fairly innocent, but oftentimes it's not innocent. They're not seeking after truth. In other words, they're asking a question and they don't care what the answer is. Now you may say, well, yeah, that's because they're Pharisees and Sadducees and they're bad guys. We do the same thing. Oftentimes we ask questions either out of fun or out of animosity towards the other person. We're trying to trick them into that. And you've heard this come up, probably different questions within the Christian realm and so forth. But, and you've heard people say, there's no stupid question, right? Well, if you're not asking for truth, it might be a really stupid question. But if you're asking for truth, it just may be because you don't know. So if I gave you a description of this podium and it's black and it's metal, and then somebody raises his hand, Billy over here says, uh, David, what color is the podium? Then Billy's not paying attention, all right? Doesn't mean that it's a stupid question, but all of you guys may think, well, what's Billy doing over there? He's not paying attention. So this whole concept of asking a question comes with a lot of different reasons. And so the Sadducees have their reasons for sure, but when we're asking questions and you're not looking for an answer, it's kind of like the question, if you've ever heard it before, can God make a rock big enough that he can't lift it? Now, I was asked this question or heard about it when I was in college or a kid or something. I can't remember. And I've heard it a few other times. But it's kind of a dilemma. It's God is the all-powerful God, so he can make whatever he wants to make. So he can make a rock bigger than he can lift. And you go, well, I don't know. So it's kind of a dilemma question. Well, that's kind of a stupid question. Well, it might be. But people ask the question not looking for the answer. They just ask the question to get into an argument or to have fun or something like that. So we were sitting at the table on Friday of la week before, whenever, whenever Thanksgiving was. Was that last weekend? Uh, so Friday before, after Thanksgiving, we're sitting around the table, me, my brother, my brother-in-law, and my dad. And we're all Aggies, and so we're discussing about the demise of A&M football. And talking about things and this is what the uh, Jimbo would have to be paid to fire him because you know everybody wishes maybe now we should fire him and you know all, just crazy talk you know just things but you know we don't have anything better to talk about so someone comes up with a question well what if Anna beats LSU tomorrow and we're like that is a stupid question there is no chance that's ever going to happen so for all of you LSU fans, if you are one, please understand we are Aggies and we know exactly what it feels like to lose to a really bad team. <clears throat> but bring up, just the cold question seemed ridiculous to me. Wasn't going to happen. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? And were they innies or outies? 
Did Jonah really get swallowed up by a big fish? Well, you can say, well, when I get to heaven, I'll ask him. Well, what if he's not in heaven? Then you can ask him. <laughs> Questions can just be off, making no sense whatsoever. And, and not for the purpose of really understanding what the meaning is or what the answer is, but just to ask the question. Sometimes we don't like the answers to the question, such as, who did Cain and Abel marry? You see, I started thinking about that, you know, when you're about a teenager, you understand, I mean, today times it's, it's a lot earlier, unfortunately, but you get to be a teenager, you understand where babies come from, and you're thinking, wait a second, this doesn't make sense. And you're kind of, whoa, sisters, is that what, I don't, wait a second, that can't be, so you try to argue way out and people do, I just don't, but that's just what it was. So I won't go into gene makeup and CF's gone into that before, but nonetheless, they married their sisters. We don't like that. It makes us feel uncomfortable because it's not a part of our culture. So it, it, it doesn't fit with us. We're kind of taken aback by it. I don't like the. Now how many other answers that you get from Scripture you just don't like? Or they make you feel uncomfortable? Well, people get answers all the time. They make them feel uncomfortable. So they kind of wiggle their way around it or dismiss it. Or I don't understand the answer, such as, well, who made God? See, that doesn't compute with us. I know that we worship a God who has always existed, but the whole fact of always existing just doesn't make sense to our finite minds. We live in a very finite world. We were born, we're going to die, church is going to be over with, we're going to eat, we're going to rest. Whatever the case happens, we, we, we live based upon things that end and begin and end and begin and so forth. It's a schedule that we keep, but God always being doesn't make sense to us. We trust with it. We trust it, but it doesn't make sense. Free will and God's sovereignty, hard to mix those two. Eternity, the Trinity. We can go over all kinds of things that we believe and that we have doctrine for, but we can't make complete sense with it because we live in a finite world. God doesn't live in a finite world. He doesn't exist in, a, in, a, in the concept of time. And so these things, they, we struggle with these questions. But the one reason that we should ask a question is to truly find out the answer. And that's not what the Sadducees were doing. So let me go back to, again, verse 24. So here's the question. They come up with this crazy hypothetical question. It's based upon a Jewish law. The law, the uh, Leverite marriage is, is in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. You don't have to turn there. If you want to, you can read it later. But this is where they're bringing it from. It says, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, it's it really talking about no sons, but no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. I'm not sure why they chose seven. They could have just done two and been sufficient, but they got to drag it into seven. All right, so there's seven brothers. Um, the first married and died having no children, left the wife to his brother. So also the second and the third and down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died in the resurrection, therefore. Of course, they don't believe in the resurrection. That's what they're trying to do is disprove or create complications with the resurrection. Whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all have married her. 
So the law was set into place. This wasn't just a Jewish, it was a Jewish law, but it was also a custom of many other people. And actually it was practiced before the written law was made. Anybody know where? Judah and Tamar. So that whole concept was based around, you can read that really discomforting story um, and understand that that's where that came from because it came from other cultures as well. And also some of that's even practiced today. Now obviously we don't practice that. But the reason for the practice was, the main reason was to keep the fortune and the land and everything about that family within the Israelite community. So you didn't want somebody that occupied land inside the Israelite land, and then the husband dies, then the wife has the land, therefore she can then marry another man outside who's not an Israelite, and then all of a sudden that group of people own that land. Does that make sense? So, then you also protect the wife, you also protect the children if there's just daughters, if the son, then the son gets the inheritance. So this was kind of like their, their protection of land and also for their welfare system. So that was the reason for it. It was practiced after the, the uh, or given a story through Ruth and Boaz. That was the concept there, was the same, uh, the same rule, the same law. So Jesus responds in verse 29. If you turn to 29, he answered them and said to them, you are mistaken. Now he doesn't say, hey, you know what? That's the way some people interpret it, but uh, let me give you my version of this. Jesus never answers with my version. He answers with the truth. And when the truth is not spoken, he says, you are mistaken. This word mistaken is also can be used as ignorant, but it's also used as you've been wondering. So you've wandered away from the truth. And this is very true for not only them, but for us as well. Over generations of time, people and families and cultures wander away from the truth a little bit at a time. And then eventually you get 40 generations later and I have no recollection of what was taught 40 generations ago. And they just completely escape from the truth. You are mistaken. Not understanding two things. Now understand that what we want to talk about mainly this morning is there's two things to this. They don't understand the scriptures and they don't understand the power of God. So these are very key things because to believe in who God is and to believe what he has written in his scriptures, these two things have to come together. If you isolate one over the other, you get off track and essentially begin to wonder. So let me explain. If, if all you're doing is looking at the scriptures and not the power of God, then you become much more ritualistic, much more legalistic, and much more just about the law, which is where the Pharisees had gotten to. And we have that today too, right? We get to this point. Even very fundamental type groups get to this point where they don't recognize the power of God or as much of the power of God, and they get over here just to the legal written word. But if you wander off to this other side, which is just the power of God, then you get into what is uh, uh, more emotional, what is more charismatic, what is more all about the spirit, but not about the truth. And we understand the complications that happen over here. So you have to take both into consideration, both together, and that's why Jesus mentions both of them. 
You have the power of God, but a person that only runs after the power of God wanders from the truth. If you have a person who only recognizes Scripture, you have a person that wanders away from the truth. And that's the same for us. We're not experiencing anything different today. We have this exampled all over the place, in our culture, in our city, everywhere, of both extremes. Even just within the church, or what claims to be the church, the people who are worshiping of some type this morning. So they're standing, Jesus is standing before these guys, like standing before the Supreme Court and saying, you don't know what you're talking about. You should, but you don't. So these Sadducees, you're just feeling this rage build up in them and Jesus continues on. So we're going to read on uh, to the next verse, which is 30, uh, verse 30. And so in the resurrection, they did not marry or do not marry, nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, he's not saying that they are angels in heaven, but like angels in heaven. So your favorite movie may be about an angel who comes to earth to earn his wings. So the bells ring at the end of the movie and everybody cries, which is one of my favorite movies. But it's horrible as far as truth is concerned, all right? Because you don't become an angel, you become like an angel. And I know you guys are going to watch that movie here soon, so just understand that when you get to the end there. So Paul talks about this, we're not going to turn there, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about the heavenly bodies and the earthly bodies. And he goes into to, to grasp on that. Now this, this truth that Jesus, this verse 30 for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So he speaks to the power of God. So Jesus addresses both things. He addresses the issue with Scripture that the, that the Sadducees have, which he's going to do next. And now he's addressing the power of God. But he speaks a truth here that I'm not sure about. I'm, I'm sure about it, it's truth but I don't like it because I have a wonderful wife that I would like to be married to her, but in heaven, we're not going to be married. Some of you are thinking, yes. <laughs> don't raise your hand. Put your hands down. Well, nobody raised their hand. I'm just kidding. So this can go either way. But this is the way Scripture is. We have things that are brought out that I don't, I can't, in my mind, the way that I am here in my relationship with my wife, I, I don't like that. But it's God's truth because in heaven we are like angels. We don't reproduce. So we don't have sex. Some of you may be out now. Well, I'm not sure about this heaven thing, this Christianity thing now understand the power of God in the sense that he provides and we will be there and there will be no, no looking back. I think for the first 15,000 years, we're going to be on our face like this, singing holy, 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 mesmerized by what we are in and not playing football. So somebody's, no, we're not going to play football. We're not going to hunt for, no. no, we are going to be in a place that God has created by his power, a new heaven and a new earth. 
Now, it doesn't say you're not going to be hunting in heaven. I'm just assuming that. But the, the thing is, is that there are some things that we don't like about what Scripture teaches, but it is true. And we believe in a God who loves us and will care for us. Now he goes on, verse 31. He says, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? So there is a certain truth that is spoken in the Torah, you Sadducees, that you're missing. It says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, spoken of out of, out of Exodus. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Exodus being written hundreds of years after these men had lived. He's not speaking of men who are dead and gone. He's speaking of men who are still living in God's glory. So the Sadducees are wrong, and, and, and Jesus points this out very quickly with, his, with the Scripture, points it right out. Puts them to shame. Putting these things both together, both the truth of God's Word and the power of God coming together. Verse 33, we have the reaction of the crowd. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at His teaching. They were astonished, not necessarily that the Sadducees had been put to shame, but they were astonished because this is truth they had not heard before. Because the Pharisees and Sadducees, the teachers of the law, the teachers of their religion, the teachers of truth had wandered so far off. When Jesus came, it had been turned upside down. He was turning it right side up. And you can read that through the Gospels, especially starting in Matthew with the Sermon on the Mount. He just turns everything right side back up again. Because everybody, all the teachings had turned it upside down. And that's what he's doing here. He's turning it right side up again. So how can I be resurrected if I'm cremated? Have you ever heard that question before? So the question can continue on. My ashes are scattered on the field and the cows eat the grass that grows from my ashes. And then the cows are milked. And some of the cows are eaten at the steakhouse locally. So some of your molecules are eaten. I don't understand then how God can resurrect my body. I want you to understand one thing, and that's the very first verse of the Bible. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you believe that, none of this other stuff is an issue. We worship the almighty, powerful God. I don't care where my molecules are, if I'm cremated and scattered across wherever. It doesn't matter. And, and, and he doesn't even have to take those molecules. He can take whatever he wants to. He is the creator. He can create whatever he wants to create. And that's what he's going to do. And that's the God that we worship. So can God make a rock that's too large for him to lift? If you take it upon God's power, God's power is always, yes, the rock is bigger, but then he comes and his power lifts it. So therefore, he has to make the rock bigger, therefore, and it just goes on and on, right? But if you come into the truth of God's word and putting those two things together, we also understand that Scripture tells us the character of God. And what is the character of God? One of the basic characters of God is he has purpose in all he does. He has reason. He doesn't go out and just do things just to goof off. And if he has reason and purpose in everything he does, which includes the purpose in every one of us, he has no reason 
to create a rock bigger than what he can lift? And that's the answer. God is a God of purpose. And he, that's all he does is purpose, purpose, purpose. He doesn't sit around like us and goof off. We are the people of goof-offs. And, you know, we got goof-off apps on our phone and goof-off things on TV. It's just constantly goofing off. God doesn't do that. He's not man. And he's not distracted by that. So this silly little question about the rock, who cares? That's not who the God is that we worship. Not at all. Can God give us victory over our sin? Through the blood of Jesus Christ and by His Spirit that lives in us, the answer is absolutely yes. Because we read that and we understand that by God's Word and by the power of God. Those two things together, we can claim victory and continue to walk out of this room and claim victory regardless of the chaos that's in your life and in mine. Does the truth of God's Word, does it change me? Am I like the tree that, that, that lives by the springs of the water that's talked about in Psalm 1? that gets its nourishment from that, and then in, in, the, in the right season it blossoms and continues to grow? Because my roots are your roots, because our roots may be in that truth, we are able to grow and mature every year, every day, constantly, learning and developing. Let's, we, we, we look at Scripture and we think, am I just looking at Scripture to have my ears tickled, like in 2 Timothy chapter 4? Just wanting to make sure that I feel good through the process. CF mentioned this this last week. Scripture's not there for us to feel good. Some things make us feel good. Some things don't. He lays out the truth. Do we allow truth, God's Word, to master us? Or do we try to master God's Word? That's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and really most of the people who were following after their teaching were doing. They were trying to master God's Word and use it for their advantage. Very easy to do. Or do we submit to it and say, I will be mastered by your Word, your truth, who you are is my God and by your power. You are the master. I am subjected to you. I am your slave, your servant. I am your child. And I trust in that. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for who you are and I thank you for your truth. Pray, Lord, that we will worship you. That we will worship you completely. The completeness of who you are and what you reveal to us. Your power and your scripture. Lord, that we will get up every day in renewness of that life that your word works within us because we submit to it. We say this in your name. Amen.